welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and welcome to Season 3. We've taken a tiny little hiatus you know, life, it happens, and I'm sure we'll get into that over the course of this season. And we're going to be doing a little bit of a mix between season one and season two, where we'll have a few episodes, just the two of us. Uh, and in other episodes, we'll bring on some researchers to touch base on some of the latest in uh, health research, basically. All right. And as always, you can find us at movewelldaily.com or on Instagram at move underscore daily underscore eds. So in today's episode, we're going to do a little bit of a a recap on our five pillars of health. As you guys know, we are health coaches. Um, Podcasts aren't the only thing that we do. And so our entire practice is built around these five pillars. So we're going to start with movement and nutrition, as these are the two big rocks that everyone uh, really reaches out to first before getting on to the uh, other threes of self-community and stillness. Brilliant. Um, so we've touched on the, the pillars before in written format and then also in our podcast. So anybody who's listened to previous seasons will know that we've done sort of a recap of that. But we think that uh, when, when you're, well, they are pillars. So when your foundations are, are set up in this way, it is worthwhile to check in on them. And in this, we will be discussing what it is again, what the pillar is, why it's important, and then going through what we have learned or how our understanding of that pillar has sort of changed or evolved as we continue to work with with people. And then what you can do to check in on that pillar yourself in your own life or perhaps what you can do to improve upon it or spend more time with it. So when it comes to movement, movement is essentially uh, one of our organism's expectations. So what I mean by that is when you are born, you expect, your system expects to encounter things like oxygen. You know, that's your lung, well, your lung's expectations are to Uh, encounter oxygen and have it readily available to you at all times. So in light of that, our organism's other expectation is movement. And movement is something that we delineate from exercise, even though it does include exercise. So when we're exercising, of course, we are moving, but we move all of the time. As you can see, Dane fidgets constantly. That's a form of movement. (laughs) Um, Meaning that there's a lot more than just structured exercise. And honestly, our body doesn't come into the world expecting structured exercise. That is something that we do to combat the more sedentary uh, lifestyle that's, that's you know, quite frankly, very easy to adopt in our current or modern society because most of our jobs do require a significant amount of um, time being spent in static postures. So, or yeah, static postures, positions, whether it's chairs or driving or which is another form of chair uh, or static standing yeah it's like we have all these different kinds of seated positions that occur throughout our days and uh so we still but we still need to 
fulfill our organism's expectation of movement. It is the one way in which we know how to keep our joints healthy, how to keep all of our systems operating optimally. And that can be somewhat ambiguous for people. Joints are more, uh, you know, tangible for people because you can feel them when they're not happy. But we tend not to feel our heart when it's not happy until, you know, it's fairly far along in terms of some sort of uh, problematic process. So the, the point is we're trying to conceptualize movement as more than just exercise because that is crucial to somebody's health. And, and some people don't have time for structured exercise on a regular basis, but they still source a lot of movement into their days. Yeah, exactly. It's in today's society, we're, we're told that exercise is the thing that you need to do. And that's just because we don't get enough movement in our day-to-day -day life. And you can't rest your way to better health, I think is something that you've said. And that's because, you know, we're, we're obsessed with longevity and supplements and biohacking. And really, we just need to let the body do what it's naturally meant to do. And so insourcing more movement is something that we've spoke about on the podcast before. And it's something that a lot of people, when they come to us, they're looking for a, like a movement plan, programming, not when they come to us, but in general, people are thinking, I need the plan that's going to get me to health. And so we always sit down with people and actually look at their actual life and say, okay, in your day-to-day, -day, like, do you have an active job already or do you have a sedentary job? And we try and figure out if you're pretty sedentary in general, where have you outsourced all of your movement and where can you actually bring some of that back in? Because if you're already somebody who's really busy and pressed for time, putting in an hour or two to get exercise is not reasonable for a lot of people. So when we can drip feed in more movement, whether that's working on how you commute to and from work or how you commute to and from your errands or you know, spending time with your family, it's just trying to find moments in the day where you can actually get more you know, organic movement, so to speak, because that's going to bring up that baseline level of health, which is the ultimate goal, because when you have that, then things like weight loss are going to come a little bit more easily, and that longevity piece that we tend to be really obsessed with that we're trying to biohack with a lot of supplements and programs will also come a little bit more easily. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, it's also just one of those maintenance things. A lot of people, we've spoken about blue zones, a lot of people are uh, quite obsessed with blue zones and I think that there's a Netflix documentary so even more people will be aware <laughs> of them Correct. now but one of the things is if you go into those areas uh, they have a lot of inconvenience in terms of their environment and so when it comes to sourcing movement and getting more of it in your life you can look at your environment as a direct reflection of how much you will or will not get in without even thinking about it. So in our Western society, if, um, you know, you have a home that's maybe you're in a condo building, you don't have stairs, like that immediately has influenced some of the movements you will not expose yourself to. Whereas uh, if you go to some of the blue zones, they are in hillier areas, they have cobblestones, uh, throughout most of the city they have a lot of stairs and like narrow spiral staircases and granted that poses accessibility issues but if we're speaking about uh, an able-bodied person th that has to live in that environment for the duration of their life they're getting a lot of movement just existing in their environment just to like 
go get groceries or to go to work or to go for a walk. Like their walk is way more variable than here in Toronto, for example, where, you know, most of it is is flat or it, yes, we have hills here, but they're not, they're, they're still uh, pavement based hills or they're like nice packed gravel. So it is relatively convenient. And, um, you know, especially when we look at things like the blue zones, there are a lot of people hyper-focused on where those centenarians are right now, meaning um, like what they're doing right in this moment in terms of what they're eating. But what you have to think about is that they, they just kept moving and existing within that environment their entire life, which means that they didn't lose certain capacities. Uh, whereas unfortunately here, sometimes people lose capacities and they don't really know that they have until they're put into an environment like that. They go travel somewhere and realize, oh my gosh, I can't go up all these stairs that are like awkward heights or I can't um, feel safe on cobblestones, like I feel like I'm going to fall, that kind of thing. And it exposes what we haven't had exposure to over here. And so that's partly why there is a bigger uh, emphasis placed on exercise and the need for it here. But even then, you can look at that and think like, okay, well, what sort of exercise suits me? It doesn't all have to exist at a gym. So if I don't have anything within my environment that quite regularly challenges my balance skills, well, then maybe that's what I need to emphasize if I want to remove the risk of a fall when I go travel and and hike, or even just like a risk of a fall here. We know people who've fallen mm -hmm. here, uh, tripping up onto a curb, or trying, or like not seeing one of the uh, many pylons that gets like those little mini ones that get destroyed. They're perfect tripping hazards throughout the city of Toronto, mm -hmm. and and a lot of people think that that is um, something that older people have to worry about, and that's not true at all. We see that problem at all ages, and quite. I'm going to throw you under the bus. Yes, a I love being bit. under the bus. Uh, <laughs> is Roche driving it? Probably. <laughs> anyway, um, it, like when when we first started working together, we noticed that Dane, who, as everybody who's listened to this knows, was um, a high-level strongman athlete in the lightweight category, couldn't balance on one leg for more than like eight seconds. So when we talk about balance and fall risk and all of that, we tend to think of aged populations, but from its basis, we've worked with a lot of strength athletes who, because of their sport, emphasize always being on two feet. And then as soon as you're on one foot and doing like a lunge or just trying to balance or balance with your eyes closed, you notice they're wobbling all over the place. And uh, I've worked with a lot of runners who are the same way. And running technically is a one-legged sport in the sense that you're, you're landing on one leg at a time. You should have good stability and endurance there and good balance there. Um, but unfortunately, that's not always the way things things go. And, you know, it, it can be part and parcel with why we see some sort of repetitive strain injuries coming up. Yeah, and one of, the, one of the questions that I really do like to ask people that I'm working with, or especially when I start working with them, is to challenge them about, like, what is their relationship with exertion or what is their relationship with challenge? Because we do live in a world where we're constantly seeking more and more comfort. That's a natural thing for humans to do, and our world is built for that and where we sold that we need that whether that's in a new car or you know traveling doesn't really matter so 
there are people that I've worked with where their relationship with exertion is one of like finding an enjoyment and fun out of that. And those people get great results from incorporating new movements, new types of activity within their lifestyle. Other people who might identify as, you know, just, oh, whenever I exert myself, it's like, I don't like sweating. It's like, it's painful. It's, it, it doesn't feel good. They have a really hard time sticking with any type of exercise regimen or in core insourcing more movement into their days. So a lot of this does come back to our identity and we'll touch base on self in a little bit, but it's how do you identify with exerting yourself or doing something hard because doing hard things makes things in life easier. But avoiding hard things makes easy things in life hard. So it's a choice that we get to make in terms of how we identify with our physical output. And it's a tricky balance too, right? Because we've met people who work intensely all the time and their key opportunity with movement is actually learning how to like navigate all the gears in between, which we've spoken about before. And so just to recap that analogy, it essentially means if you're always doing high intensity or max loads, like really grinding it out, you're, you're cranking on like the highest gear of a bicycle and you've forgotten about all of the other ones. So it does also mean that you are more prone to overtraining or to burnout or to uh, repetitive strain injuries and uh, from lifting specifically and or running or whatever your, I should say not lifting, whatever your endeavor is that's creating that high intensity and your opportunity is to learn how to like fluctuate all the other gears to bring about some balance to that and to your system. And then I work with a lot of people with MSK, uh, so musculoskeletal conditions, chronic conditions, injuries, and sometimes there's a fear of movement that comes in, rightfully so. Pain is is um, a pretty big thing there, and, and fear often goes right alongside it in terms of like preventing people from pushing into more challenging tasks. And... Uh, Again, with them, like part of it is establishing parasympathetic states and reclaiming safety and movement. And that's generally done at very, very low gentle intensities, drip feeding little movement tasks throughout someone's day, not really doing a workout per se. Um, even in the context of rehab, like we always want to stay really shy of where someone's threshold of fatigue is. But that's only one stage. And to really reclaim freedom freedom in, when we were talking about freedom, Dane was noticing just like how much freedom having more mobility has given him um, over the years and really having the freedom to move within your day-to-day, to not be afraid to lift that pot full of water, um, to not be afraid to like take those awkwardly shaped stairs, that kind of thing um, is is where we need to go from reclaiming safety and parasympathetic like calming states in your movement to learning how to strategically challenge it. And, and you'll get like an adrenaline response. We usually find like heart rate goes up, temperature goes up. But also that is how we try to navigate getting into sympathetic states on purpose. So instead of being stuck in a sympathetic state, like a, an extreme of that would be fight or flight. Remember, this is a huge gradient. So it's not just one or the other. It's not like an off switch in our body. But if we've had a lot of MSK conditions and uh, chronic pain or chronic conditions like COPD or, or otherwise, um, then we'll see that there is an apprehension towards 
stressing the body and CWPD is probably not a great example because we do need to be really careful with that one. But the other ones, um, like postural orthostatic tachycardia and even mass cell activation syndrome and EDS and Addison's, like all of these conditions we need to figure out, okay, here's our parasympathetic Wow, let me try that one Parasympathetic. Again. Parasympathetic state. It's early. Tongue hasn't quite figured out how to work yet. Um, these are our activities that bring us into that state. But also, here's how we use movement strategically to be in a sympathetic state. That's also a way for us to dissipate stress. So we often think of a sympathetic state as something that's you know causing stress. But not all stress is necessarily negative. Like you can think of this where if you're really angry, uh, some people want to go on like a power walk or they just want to go and punch a bag. Like that's a way for your body to process what it's feeling. And so in reclaiming movement and reclaiming sort of that freedom and that confidence and really the trust in your body means that you're not always stuck at either end of the spectrum of always doing things that are like super, super slow and calming or always doing things that are crazy intense and like blasting your system. It, a lot of it is about figuring out like where are all of your gears and then based on how your body feels that day, what are the ones that you need to play on? And granted, it can be a really slow process, especially if you're coming from rehab and chronic pain. But nevertheless, like, there is a bit of a thrill for most people I've worked with when they get to challenge themselves and feel that, like, heart rate go up and also feel safe when it goes up. So it is, a like, that, that state of arousal is usually uh, where we associate those symptoms as being either ones that we don't want, like being uncomfortable with our heart rate and temperature going up, um, or the opposite, <laughs> being uncomfortable or bored with it being, being too low. And I th that's a really good kind of summary of like, we wanted to give people, like, how do you check in on, on this pillar of health? And that's a really good way to do that is to ask yourself, you know, how do I identify with, with movement and with challenge and with exertion? Where do I already spend most of my time? What would be a more appropriate counterbalance to that? That's a way that you can kind of check in to see like what stimulus you need, right? And at the end of the day, most people need to source more movement. <laughs> That's, I think, the big takeaway. And the biggest question that you should ask yourself there is, what is the thing I will do most consistently? That is how you will get more movement in, is if you're thinking, I need that plan, that program, really take a step back and see, like, do you have time for a structured program in your life? If you do, fantastic. Find a coach, move forward, get the program that suits you. Great. But if not, if you're already that person that if you feel like you identify and you're very, very busy, you don't have much time, it's stressful thinking about how am I going to fit exercise in, then peel it back and just say, okay, where in my day can I get more movement? Can I walk from point A to point B instead of taking that car? Can I do something while, you know, food is being prepared or while food is even being delivered, can I do something in that time? It's look for little pockets in the day where you can do something simple because it's about the minimum effective dose, not the maximum effective dose. Yeah, and, um, you know, something as simple as a posture change goes a really long way. So instead of sitting on the couch at the end of a day, sat at your desk, even if you're doing structured exercise, we've met a lot of people who are in the gym like five days a week, but that's the only time they get movement. The rest of their day is like completely sedentary. We're just going to encourage you for the sake of your joint health to change your posture frequently. 
Um, so sitting on the ground is a great way to encourage your body to continue changing posture. You can continue watching your TV show while you do that, but that immediately changes things. Um, maybe it's a book that you're reading that would actually sound great, <laughs> would be good in audio format. So you take a walk while you while you listen to it. So there are a lot of ways of just combining it. Again, go back to the environment comment. Our environment isn't necessarily structured in a way that encourages movement or inconveniences in terms of movement. And so if you can get creative that way and find things that automatically prompt you to do them, to Dane's point, be consistent with it, then it's really, really helpful because it also requires less willpower every time. Like you don't need to think, oh, okay, I gotta go do this thing. So you can create little like triggers within your, within your life. Like when I start this TV show, I spend the first 20 minutes of it on the ground. There you go, it becomes a habit. And, and to Dane's point, that is just what begets consistency. Um, before we move on to nutrition, what's the one thing that you feel has changed in your understanding of movement in the last five years? In the last five since years. Since we established these pillars. <laughs> um, I think it is that... It's that piece that we just spoke to about understanding your actual baseline, understanding who you are and how you live your life before choosing that output. Because that's where a lot of people can go wrong is that they might already have a super active job and think they still need to go for three or four runs a day. It's a reminder that we all get older. And as we get older, again, life changes, but our body changes as well. So the rules of what we quote unquote need as that minimum effective dose changes quite a bit. And a lot of times it is that the minimum effective dose is smaller. So it's just really understand who you are instead of listening to, you know, whatever is out there in the, in the, in the social atmosphere or whatever we call it these days. You're listening to podcasts or reading blogs and just saying, this is the thing you have to do. You need X number of zone two cardio, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, understand who you are, how you live your life and see what is your dosage that you need. So to me, it's really that individualized thing. As I get older, it's <laughs> understanding how much that has changed and it's kind of relaying that message to people. Yeah, I think just changing the recipe mm -hmm. uh, on a regular basis because I found we need, we have found that we do a lot less structured strength training. It's very easy to just maintain our strength with a smaller dose, but we do a lot more uh, aerobic training of different types, like through body weight movements, through longer walks, uh, for me through cycling, actually you through little bursts of cycling. So uh, the ratio of things changes, and um, we'll get to this in self. The less you get hooked in on just one way of doing things as being the perfect recipe, whether it's movement or nutrition or otherwise, uh, the m better you'll be able to react to what your body needs in that moment and changing modalities or cha changing um, ratios. Yeah, the, uh, that's a really good point with the weight training is that unless you're a competitive lifter in some way, shape, or form, the, the minimum effective dose for weight training, for most people, especially if you've been a non-weight trainer your whole life and you're picking it up in your 30s or 40s the minimum effective dose is very low like it's a very low threshold to start with so that's a really good takeaway as well so while i think we could continue speaking about movement for an entire podcast this is about all the pillars so we should move on to the nutrition piece and nutrition i guess what is nutrition uh, I, I like Freya, Freya wrote down definition. Everything you put in your mouth, inclusive of how you consume it. So chewing, timing, stress state, 
that nature of things. And I think that's a really good jumping off point to speak about nutrition because again, in, and now it's one of those blunt objects, the movement and the nutrition, I need the plan, I need the diet, I need the, this blunt object to smash my body into <laughs> what I want it to become. But there's so much nuance to nutrition, inclusive of those little things that you just mentioned, Freya, the, the, the chewing timing stress state. Mm-hmm. So yeah, with nutrition, the thing is the way that we learned about it, um, or at least I learned about it in undergrad, uh, was <laughs> as this thing that we really didn't fully understand. But of course, there were recommended like daily allowances of certain things, and there were calculations to approximate how many calories somebody needed, and um, based on your anthropometrics, this is how much weight you should weigh within a range. So th- that's kind of what nutrition was. It was like checking off boxes for the, the caloric intake, the macronutrients, and um, a lot of it was sort of like a best guess at that point in time. We didn't really even understand what leptin and ghrelin was fully at that time. Uh, I mean, we still don't understand certain parts of the, <laughs> the, the pathway, but still. Um, that is nevertheless how people still view nutrition as if they can get this like perfect recipe of exactly, you know, we've got like macro veganism, we have carnivore diets, we have um, everything else in between, we have if it fits your macros still. Um, so there are a lot of, of rules around it. We had blood typing, which I know we mentioned was a, a total hoax. Um, in a previous podcast, but the the point is we've always approached it as this, like, this is the recipe, and this is the magic thing, and nutrition, interestingly, we we know now is influenced, the way in which we digest, sorry, not the nutrition, the way in which we digest is influenced by so many things beyond just, like, the macros or the calories in the food in front of you, so when you choose to eat influences how well you digest and process uh, those foods and assimilate those nutrients. We also know the state in which you eat changes that as well. So a lot of people who eat on the go or in a stressed state or in a distracted state, they're like, I'm not stressed, but like they didn't actually really register all the mouthfuls they were taking because they were preoccupied with like work emails. In all of those states, we tend to find, okay, well, people have more bloat or they have more constipation or they have other sort of ailments. And what they'll first tackle is trying to do food elimination. They'll say, oh, I ate that thing. These are the symptoms I keep getting of bloat or abdominal cramping. Therefore, it must be that thing. I'm going to eliminate that. Instead of looking at the entire environment and context of the situation. Because if you're constantly eating distracted, we do so many things in a distracted fashion, driving distracted, eating distracted, um, and you're eating at a faster pace, and you're not really uh, taking the time to like process the fact that you are consuming food in this in this moment, then all of those things can create a lot of digestive distress. Um, it can create weight fluctuations, either malabsorption, you lose a lot of weight or otherwise. And it had nothing really to do with the food itself. It had everything to do with the context within which you were eating it, including your own psycho-emotional state. Yeah, nutrition should be something that mitigate that mitigates stress it should be something that relieves stress and helps the body recover nowadays meals and eating and nutrition often contribute to increased stress 
and inflammation. And that's a bit of a paradox just of our modern times. And just to your point, I, I have a client who I'm currently working with and obviously not going to name names, but he's always had, um, he's a pretty young guy and he's always had um, GERD or acid reflux. And I was speaking to him about how fast he eats and he's like, oh yeah, I wolfed out my food. He's like, I, I, I've never paid attention to that. I'm like, okay, just pay attention to that because he's like, you know, he's tried to go vegan. He's tried, you know, removing dairy, uh, no coffee, no chocolate, acidic foods. I was like, okay, pay attention. Try and put down your utensils between bites. Just count your chews. Try and do that. Literally the first time he did that, he's like, wow, I didn't have, I didn't have acid reflux last night when I went to bed for the first time in weeks. Mm-hmm. Like, cool. There, so there's something that uh, this is uh, sort of a principle, but like the simplest thing is often the truest. And in cases like that, mm. it's like you you can go so deep into all these different sorts of diets and like elimination things. And the simplest thing probably hasn't even been tried yet. We think of your digestive system as a whole and what gets it going. The first thing that gets it going is you seeing the food that you're consuming. Most of us can attest to the fact that we've looked at a thing and started like drooling a little bit, and maybe not drooling, but creating saliva inside our mouth, hopefully. Uh, Homer Simpson and donuts. (laughs) Right? But like, it just goes to show that some of your digestive processes start to respond in accordance with you anticipating food. Um, Like you cook a nice meal, and throughout that entire time, you're entirely focused on the preparation of it, and that alone is also preparing your body for the consumption of it consumption of it thereafter and uh, the simplest thing is often the truest so many people will have been on all sorts of uh, you know in in some cases even medications to try and resolve issues like GERD or persistent bloat or alternating between like really really loose stools and really compacted ones and nobody asked them how they chew nobody asked them how long it takes them to eat no one asked them in which states they were eating. Uh, We've, you know, worked with a lot of people over the years. Like, I I can think of at least a dozen, and then I can also throw myself in the mix, where our GI flared up when we, (laughs) on days that we had to have, like, incredibly stressful meetings, work-related meetings, um, or with, like, really challenging relationships, whether it's, like, the partner that they were with or a work person that they excuse me, or a, like, work colleague or anything like that. There there was a situation that had nothing to do with the food that was causing it. But if those don't even get tackled, if we don't even draw attention to them, then you can wind up down these rabbit holes of, like, really extreme diets of, like, all I'm going to eat are legumes or all I'm going to eat is, you know, stuff that has zero X, Y, Z in it, which becomes very hard to avoid. And I'm going to go on a cleanse. Which or is, cleanses. Yeah. Um, which the opposite is, of what you're, is going to make your body feel great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, cleanses are a whole other ballgame. Uh, again, it's like the, the weight loss industry is sadly enmeshed with 
nutrition. So a lot of people see those two things as synonymous. Um, and they're not, but that is how marketing has always portrayed it. Uh, and, you know, they've always pitched it as like, this is a weight loss thing and it's super healthy for you. And cleanses fall into that as well. But so do a lot of other things. Essentially, a lot of things that cause people to poop a lot convinces them that they're cleaning themselves out. And sadly, that's not the way it goes. And we're still learning a lot about the gut microbiome, but, um, you know, harsh laxatives are not helpful. Um, obviously there are certain medical situations in which case that is warranted, but we're talking about people buying like wild rose off the shelf and, and cleaning themselves out in that sense. It's not necessarily a healthy way. And our body, again, it kind of goes back to the movement thing too, where like our biology is magic. If we tap into the the expectations and the needs of our biology, really great things can happen. And I understand that that is, it sounds really simple. Applying it can be very challenging uh, depending on like where you live and depending on the environment with, within which you live, what you have access to and so on. But with that in mind, <laughs> trying to make decisions that do tap into your biology's like inherent expectations and needs tends to be easier. So one of the needs we generally had was properly chewing food, right? Um, because we didn't have these hyperpalatable things, which everybody knows about, um, and it, because that also has been popularized. Like we were talking about McDonald's the other day and how the bread, I think the bread is just like, it kind of just like melts. Whereas if you have a burger that you've made at home with like bread from a local bakery or buns from a local bakery and, you know, um, some higher quality ingredients, like biting into that burger is actually a little bit more difficult to try to get all the things in one place, not squared out the back end. But that's just a prime example of like, if we make things hyper palatable and soft, it takes very little chewing, which is how people can wolf things down. You can certainly do that with things that do require more chewing uh, with different effects. But a lot of foods out there are designed to be really easy to consume. And then of course we have like, stories of Silicon Valley people who are blending all their food into a smoothie and people are praising them for the, the grind and for just getting the bare necessities down. And I'm kind of like, okay, well, we, we can't say that, sure, maybe what they're creating is, is great, but that, that will have a consequence. Like, it, maybe not right today or tomorrow, but there is no way that that will not have a consequence down the line. Yeah, two, two things I just want to touch base on that you just said. And one is, it's a pretty good rule of thumb that if the majority of the food you eat doesn't require teeth, <laughs> you, might, you might want to make a few changes. And this is not to be biased against people who don't have teeth. But <laughs> if, it's a good filter, actually, now that I think about it. If all your food is, like, gummy and easy to just swallow without chewing, you might want to get something with a little bit more fiber in there. And the second part is the grind piece that you just mentioned. And if if everything you're doing with nutrition is just to allow yourself to grind more, health is going to suffer at some point. You can't constantly grind. You need counterbalance. Counterbalance is what enables our body to thrive all the time. You can't constantly be grinding. So, yeah, you get 20-something-year-old guys in Silicon Valley who are grinding, grinding. Cool, you can do that at that age. No problem and get away with it. Most people in life with kids and jobs and stuff like that, you need counterbalance to all the things that cause stress in your life. So just wanted to touch base on those two things. And also just to mention, I think one of the things that has really, again, if we go back to the past six years, five, six years, things that I've learned about nutrition, 
one of the main things for people is that unfamiliarity feels wrong and things that feel familiar feel safe. So when it comes to nutrition choices and changing our behaviors around nutrition, the reason it's so hard to make a lasting change is because the things we've always done, whether they're helpful or not, they feel safe to us. They feel right to us because we've always done them. And those are usually the things that are holding us back from our health goals or our, you know, weight loss goals kind of go in that same bucket for a lot of people. That's what they're chasing. But they ultimately they want to feel better in their body. And a lot of times that is the weight loss is what they chase. But the things that bring us comfort are often things that hold us in the place that we've existed for so long. So this dials it back to the same thing I mentioned about movement. And it's what is your relationship with, in this case, you know, uncertainty or discomfort, something that feels different. Because with nutrition, you often have to do the opposite. If, some, if what you've been doing from a nutrition perspective hasn't worked over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, this is where you have to check in on what are those things I have been doing chronically that might bring me comfort in one way, but are probably the things that are holding me back in another way. And finding a way to embrace that newness, that unfamiliarity, because that's often the thing that's going to bring you to that new place, which is, again, change is scary. It's somewhere you haven't been. So you have to latch on to that and, and be willing to go to that place that doesn't feel, doesn't feel right because you don't know it. But when you get there, that's when it can feel right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, change is, change is scary sometimes, especially when it comes to food. And one of the interesting things about... Uh, even research and how a lot of people point the finger at researchers saying, oh, you're not including a lot of females in your trials. When it comes to nutrition, a lot of females don't want to be in those trials. So I'm not excusing anybody <laughs> in this. It's a, I'm saying it's a mixed bag because as soon as you know, you're, do, you're running a, a trial where you're asking females to change what they eat and they don't know if that will result in weight gain or weight loss. Um, obviously, ethically, they're never going to do something that makes the, like they're not going to ask participants to to eat stuff that will like legitimately make them unhealthy. That's not how those things work. But a lot of females are are hesitant to have someone else change their food, and so um, and and they find that that's just not as consistent with males, which is why I'm highlighting that it's it's often female. So sometimes it can be hard, which I think just highlights the fact that like weight has been such a contentious issue for a really, really long time. It's been equated with health. The weight loss industry is worth billions of dollars. Um, and so it has all amounted to this, this fear around what we put in our mouths, um, which goes right back to Dane's point about feeling safe. And, uh, you know, I've seen this expression with people uh, who are handling a lot of different things like allergies and pain and, and sleep issues. And sometimes changing food can help that, right? So, like, if you pull your meals away from bedtime and you start eating earlier in the day, it can definitely help sleep. And we know that sleep can help pain. So that's how nutrition can fit into that picture. It has nothing to do with somebody's weight. But having somebody change a pattern like that can sometimes feel scary because they're afraid that something that they already 
are familiar with that maybe isn't comfortable, but they're familiar with it will change. And so not knowing what's ahead of you, even if that thing is ultimately better, not knowing what's ahead of you can feel scary enough to hold you back um, because you feel safe even in, ironically, even in your current discomfort. Um, So anyway, it is one of those things where like, we found a lot of people were fasting, we fasted, we tried it out for years, um, more and more research keeps coming out, it's one of those things where like, if you've always been eating late in the day, and you have high anxiety, uh, you've got some digestive issues, a lot of people will just like keep pushing that meal even later, even later, thinking more is better, when really, you just need, you might need to flip the script and eat earlier, um, even though that'll feel weird at f- weird at first or scary at first to reclaim safety in essentially I think it boils down to variety so we talked about uh, claiming safety in movement and the whole idea is you're trying to like go away from this tight tight little circle that's like the recipe of like I can do these three things or these 10 things and I can eat these 15 things and this is what keeps me safe um, to just like grow your range of tolerance and grow your safety like the key thing is feeling safe having more variety um, in in your life in a multitude of, of ways when it comes to choices around movement and around um, nutrition and that kind of thing. Yeah, and that comment right there really, just, I, re- I had this realization the other day, and I've worked with people for nutrition for over a decade now, and I can't remember, or maybe it's never happened, that somebody's come to me for help with nutrition, and there's somebody who already gets up in the morning and has like a big, calm, nutritious breakfast. Those people never reach out for nutrition help. It's people who skip breakfast or who rush through their mornings. Like that is it. That is the most common thread among people who reach out for nutrition coaching, whether that's for health or weight loss or otherwise. It's it's really fascinating. And I know that's anecdotal. It's correlation, perhaps, but dials it back to again. If you know, give people a point to check in on with this is with your nutrition. If you're if you feel like your nutrition is not serving you. What have you been doing chronically for the longest time? What are the things that you do most frequently? Because even if those things bring you comfort, it's very possible those are the things that need to change because comfort does not equate to rightness. So that's a good point to check in on in nutrition. And that actually segues us really nicely into self, right? Self-care is, uh, you know, I... (laughs) These are things I do for self-care often. So um, sense of self is a very important pillar because knowing oneself and our values and our purpose and our de- identity is, is what gives us ownership over our lives. Yeah, so when we say self as our pillar, it, d- it doesn't actually mean self-care. That can be a component of yes. it. Self is... is like you, <laughs> yourself, <laughs> your sense of yourself. Yes. Um, and as Jane said, like your identity and your own ownership over your life. And and your values and your identity will all kind of like push you to make decisions in a certain way, whether you're acutely aware of what those are or not. Um, and, you know, if we could loop this back into like movement and nutrition, somebody who identifies as a person who like does a certain type of exercise um, and identifies as a diet, like I am a, and same thing with movement, I am a, and insert here, a lot of their decisions around those things and around what they do with themselves uh, will be sort of like 
guided by the fact that they identify as those things. And um, that's just an example of it. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's detrimental. It just means that, like that that's something that helps you make decisions in your life. <laughs> uh, so if somebody, in, if you identify as a runner um, and somebody invites you on a trip that has these like guided running tours every day in a city, you'd be like, yeah, I'm a runner. That sounds like a great way for me to travel. Some runners would not say that. But the point there is just like, it, it's not just the fact that you can do it physically. It, the identification as that might drive you to make decisions like that a little bit more often. Yes, true. <laughs> that was terrible. We're going to cut womp. that. Uh, probably not. I like it when we keep these things in. But yeah, the sense of self is a lot of people who come to work with us, they don't quite hear themselves say it, but it's, I am busy. I am, I am stressed. It's, these are things that they don't necessarily feel that like if they were asked, how do you identify that kind of person of you? They wouldn't say those things, but those are the messages or the things that they think and feel most often throughout their days. So in a way, those are like, that's who you become when you're constantly thinking, I don't have time for, I don't have time for. This is, it's constantly being reactive rather than being proactive. And that, that sense of self is taking the time to understand what's important. So if something is not going well for you, this is kind of the, the takeaway that I've learned over the past five years is doing your personal work. And it's something that I never really thought I needed <laughs> until I met Freya. Another conversation we were having last night <laughs> where I thought I, you know, I, I had it all. I knew it all. Everything was going great. But actually taking a few minutes every day to sit with myself and be like, okay, remind myself, what kind of person am I? How do I want to, how do I want to go through today? You know, do I want to be someone who is reacting to everything that's thrown at me or am I going to go into the day with a certain mantra of, you know, whatever it is, kindness or calm or patience and, and trying to just be that person through all of our daily things? Because if we don't do that, if we don't actually think about who we are and how we want to represent ourselves, we end up being reactive. And whatever the world throws at us, whatever comes out is, again, it's just a reaction rather than who we actually are. I'm not sure if I explained that well, but that's how I feel. <laughs> well, and that's just been part of your own like process with it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just with the patience and the, the calm comment, uh, I will say I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. Sometimes I'm too calm <laughs> at a point in time when I probably could have been a little bit more firm about something really not being okay. Um, whether that was through like interaction with another human or something like that. And so it is, you know, to your point, it's more about like knowing what makes you tick and it doesn't take, you don't have to meditate for 45 minutes to figure that out. But for some people that will help them figure that out. For other people, it's something completely different, like doing brain dumps at night and seeing based on, brain dumps are just like really, really short form, like bullet point journals. So it's not actually journaling about a story, it's more bullet points. Um, and there are a bunch of different questions that you can use in a brain dump that can be helpful. But sometimes you start to see your own pattern of like what's making you tick. Sometimes it's taking uh, leadership courses or reading books about it to realize, oh my gosh, that's what makes me really driven in this way. Like, these are my values. I thought they were here, but actually it turns out they're over here and that's okay. And, and of course they also evolve over time, but it is having that sort of like wherewithal of, of 
what makes you tick, what helps you make decisions, what helps you navigate change, all of that, like if you have a good sense of self, um, that helps you handle all those things that, that comes your way, um, or sorry, that come your way throughout life. Whereas if you feel like it's always external factors and you maybe don't feel like you have a, a solid sense of self, you might have more uh, sort of dissonance in the th some of the things that you do. Or you might have more frustration and realize, like, I don't want to be frustrated with that friend, but I keep saying yes to doing activities that I really don't want to do. <laughs> and I'm not being honest about that. Like, it can be as simple as that, of I keep saying, yes, I'll go bowling with them every Friday, but, like, I really don't <laughs> like bowling. You know? Like, it doesn't have to be this big, like, here's my purpose and my values and, like, um, you know, this giant thing. It's, it's, it's the little things, which I call the little big things. It's the little decisions. Like you said yes to coffee at 3 PM, even though you know that that'll keep you up all night because you were afraid to ask for a different type of drink, like water or tea, you know, it's the little big things. Exactly. And that's to me, having a good sense of self is taking responsibility and taking ownership for your, your choices and decision, right? Because as you say, Freya. As I always say, choices were made. And, uh, you know, I find even when when there's a lot of stress, like we said, not all stress is bad. It'll, you know, some of it probably not great, but um, others, fine. It's a normal part of life, I would say. And uh, I always remind myself if we, if like there is a lot of stress, I say choices were made. I took on a lot of stuff in the last uh, 18 months. And anytime it felt like, I had no idea how I was going to get it all done, I would remind myself that choices were made. And, and it's true. I had the privilege and opportunity to make those choices, and I fully own that. I'm not trying to deny that I feel stressed in that moment, but I, there is a certain kind of piece of being like, okay, well, this is the choice I made. This is the consequence right at this moment. Now, what are the choices that I can make to handle these current consequences of maybe needing to like work a little later? How am I going to recalibrate from that? And I think that that's, that's a really important part of the overall process is understanding where we've had choice because every choice has a consequence. But not all consequences are negative, which is the part where people, I think it's because we learn the word consequence when we're children, um, when we're doing something bad and parents are like, you're going to have a consequence. Uh, but not all consequences are bad. Like I chose to have water. The consequence is that I'm hydrated. Great. Simple, small, but every choice has a consequence and we have to recognize that we do have choice because sometimes people don't realize that and then when they do and they start exercising those small choices consciously um, even if they're only two that you could possibly make and they're not ideal a lot of the things that you have going on are not in your control you just have to take account of the things that you can influence change with or influence consequences with in that moment and and I find that there's a certain amount of peace with that so even when Things are a little crazy and it's chaotic. It's like, okay, well, choices were made. So what choice am I, am I going to make right now or what choices will I make right now to help me handle it and, and move forward? So as a takeaway uh, for this sense of self part of the podcast, just to, to touch base on the dissonance and the stuff you felt. So if you're somebody who feels unhappy with themselves more often than not from time to time, however often that may be, it's to take the time to accept where you are, 
the circumstance that you're in right now, except that this is it, choices have been made, and forget about the blame, whether you blame yourself or blame an external factor or whatever. It's accepting where you are and saying, cool, this is where I am. Now, moving forward, I get to choose. I can make a choice. If the choices I've been making don't jive with who I am, I've been feeling dissonance because I've been saying yes to some stuff that's not great or no to things that maybe I know I should approach, know that you now get the choice. The future is a blank slate. So accept where you're at, absolve the blame, forget that, move forward with kindness to yourself and with optimism to say, hey, I can make a new choice. I can go this way. These, this is how I, I know these haven't been working for me as choices. Trying the new thing. And again, it goes back to that whole embracing discomfort a little bit because it might be difficult. But when you know you do have, you know, not accountability, that you do have control over your choices, the future looks a lot brighter, I guess, just in general. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, did you lose your train of thought there? I don't know. There were birds outside, <laughs> just fluttering around. I think I got the point across, you know. <laughs> you were like, yeah, life's good. Life can yeah. be better. <laughs> but it's true. Just, uh, just doing honor to yourself. That's really what it comes down to in knowing yeah. that. There are external factors that always play on us, but we ultimately do have agency, is the word I was looking for, not accountability, yeah. over what we do moving forward. Yeah. We try our best yeah. um, within the constraints with, within our lives. Um, from ourself, moving from ourself into community, uh, community is our, our fourth pillar here. Community is fairly self-explanatory in terms of what it is and uh, why it's important, I think, has been really highlighted in the last few years because of COVID. A lot of people uh, lost connection with the communities that they were a part of and uh, lost that sort of like, well, a lot of people became very isolated. And it doesn't take a lot to create a community. You don't need a, a massive group of people um, to feel like you're part of something. Just having contact with a few close people can be really, really helpful. And, and COVID caused a lot of loneliness um, where individuals could not communicate or like be in touch with in, a, in, a, in the same room, be in touch with um, you know, their close group of, of family members or friends or just people in their neighborhood. They couldn't have all of those like little connections throughout their day that we maybe don't realize comprises our community it's like going say you're somebody who goes to a coffee shop every day like that barista knows your name and that might be part of your community it's just a touch point that makes you feel like uh you're part of a bigger group and uh you know one of the biggest issues here i i think i saw was just that all the various group classes we're talking about like aquafit and outdoor sports or um some of the some of the programs for adults with mobility challenges and all the programs for kids and teens like all these programs just had to come to a screeching halt and you know i i think that we're still we're still very much reeling from that i feel like we're going to learn a lot more about the implications of that down the line 
because obviously everybody meeting on Zoom to do these things is not the same at all. And uh, so, you know, with within community, it can be the people that you don't really, really know, but that you see regularly, that you say hi to. You know, we have neighbors um, in our building that we know a little bit about them, but like they are part of our sort of, they are part of our community. And then there are people in the neighborhood that we'll see. They're part of like our auxiliary community. Like it's more just a hello. And that alone can help a lot of people feel more like they belong, less like they're they're on an island on their own. And then of course you go in from that to the people that you would share your fears with and your deep like hopes and dreams, that kind of thing. So community is, is um, is pretty expansive and like I said we don't need a ton of like super close people but having a couple people that we can really be connected with and then having other people in our environment that we feel like we could say hello to <laughs> is huge and there was that sort of animosity that came about with the distancing in the sense that people like wouldn't even look at each other on the street and it's like okay you could be distanced but like still say hello and so I think a lot of it is it reclaiming that post-pandemic because there's a lot of like angst and fear and aggression and people don't necessarily realize that those are the emotions that they're handling right now and so uh, we find that like just a simple little hello and a smile some people completely avoid contact eye contact want nothing to do with us phones don't help with that but it makes a world of difference in terms of our physiology. Like our physiology responds well to a smile. It's why a smile is universally recognized. Disgust is not, anger isn't even really universally recognized, but smiling is universally recognized. And, um, you know, it's, it may sound cheesy, but again, like feeling loneliness versus alone and community is, is complex, but one of the simplest things is it a smile? Mm -hmm. one, one of the biggest reasons I, I love mornings and especially going outside in the mornings is because in the mornings you will see the, the best of people. You know, people out walking their dogs or just going out to grab a coffee or just trying to get some sun and people will make eye contact and smile and say hello in the mornings. It's, it's, a, it's a far more common thing to see. Whereas if you don't, you're never up in the mornings, for example, and you go out at night all the time, that's when you see the worst of people. People are drunk. People are, <laughs> you know, stumbling around if you go downtown. Or Toronto they're afraid. And, but they're afraid, exactly. The head's down, in the phone, got places to go. It's just rush, 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 rush. It's a completely different environment to, to put yourself into, which is why mornings are really magic when it comes to health for a variety of reasons, and that's only one of them. And then to touch base on another thing that you mentioned, Freya, even before the pandemic, our phones were making us, you know, more more lonely. They, they claim to make us more connected. Ultimately, phones are making us lonelier and lonelier. They're giving us, you know, that we have phones. We can bail on its social plans anytime we want. It's normal. And the pandemic then came in and just made it all that much worse. And we are still totally reeling from that. So having a strong sense of self that we just talked about is so crucial for health to avoid that internal dissonance that we can feel every day. Because when we feel like we're not acting in ways that match up with our, our, our values and our integrity, that will cause this chronic stress and that will cause chronic disease over time. Community on that flip side is basically how you can have a community to support your strong sense of self. So finding that community where you find like-minded people that really vibe with you 
having support from others to say, yeah, like this is you, this is the self that you have and the person you are. And now you've found people to say, yeah, that person is great. Like keep being that person. It brings that whole picture together. And that is what brings up that, that deep health. It's one of the reasons I do love the gym and I'll call out, shout out to Fortis Fitness right here. The morning crew, I'm there most days, 637. And the morning crew there, they're just so supportive. There's so many great people there who didn't know each other before they showed up at the gym. They started going to the gym probably because they had their own fitness goals. But there's no doubt in my mind that people continue to go to the gym because it's the community. They want to see their people. They want to have those morning conversations. It's a beautiful way for them to start their day. And when you can find something like that, it doesn't have to be the gym. It can be, like you said, going to the local coffee shop, anything like that. But finding a community that you feel really does support who you are, it makes all the difference in terms of longevity and quality of life. And there is research to back that up as well. So, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in terms of our own personal understanding, I, I think we've already touched on how it has changed and a lot of it has changed because of the the vantage point that we got from the pandemic of, of removing community. We saw how negatively people were impacted and we have friends all over the globe and uh, across our country where restrictions were very different. We saw the impacts change based mm-hmm. on that. And, um, you know, in terms of getting more of it, it doesn't have to be this big complex uh, thing, even though as an adult, I know that making friends and meeting new people can be uh, tricky, trickier than, you know, as a kid, that has its own challenges, but you are put into a school (laughs) where it's like, okay, make friends, off you go. Um, And as an adult, we found a lot of our clients, like, in encouraging them to, you know, reclaim some community uh, after all of the closures, like, really left everybody isolated to, to their home. Sometimes it's picking up a new sort of thing, whether uh, this is, okay, this is a big one that we know so many people who've picked this up, uh, is pickleball. We know so many people, but uh, like Dane was touching on, uh, you know, people who really resonate with you and the same kind of, um, they might be the just the same sort of like ideologies or morals or, or whatnot, or interests in terms of um, what you love to talk about. Those might be more like your close friends. But when it comes to taking part in sort of a, a team or a partnered sport, that can be huge as far as community. And so that's why I think pickleball has been so successful is because you don't need a high level of skill to go into it. You didn't need to start when you were like three or four years old to be relatively proficient with it. And people are generally really supportive in that environment, which is fantastic. And you can get more There are more courts um, for pickleball than there are like squash courts where you need membership at a club and it's this whole thing. And, uh, you know, we we see this in all sorts of other things. We were noticing that softball leagues are back at the park near us, which is fantastic. When we were swimming at the YMCA just down the street a few times a week, we would always go in the timing that we happened to be going at was uh, in line with aquafit classes. We'd see the same people mm-hmm. in the change rooms each time, which is wonderful. Like their conversations are naturally occurring there. That might be the only time they quote unquote hang out, but it's huge as far as having community. And more importantly, people notice when someone's missing. And that 
gives a sense of belonging as well to be like, oh, where were you last week? We missed you there, that kind of thing. Um, so it doesn't have to be huge, but, th th you know, there are, like, book clubs out there that are more open. There are new hobbies that you can take on. There are walking groups that you can join in on. Um, and, you know, it can take a little bit of a take a little bit of a self-push sometimes to take on something new like that, but at this particular point in time, it can be incredibly helpful, uh, you know, just based on what your own interests are, or maybe try something that you think you'll be really bad at and see what happens. You might be surprised. We've had a lot of clients that we've encouraged it to do things that they didn't think they were inherently good at, uh, meaning, oh, no, no, I'm not athletic. I'm not going to try that. It's like, give it a shot. You've never actually given yourself the opportunity to be athletic. Um, and that doesn't, that's not a blame thing. That's like, you know, unfortunately, when we were kids, if you, you were either labeled as like athletic, or you have an athletic potential versus people who are labeled as not having that, which is not fair or correct. But then we see a lot of kids um, in the teen years, because they no longer have to be part of, like, gym sports, they just self-select themselves out because they feel like they're not good at it. So there are a ton of things out there that you can sort of ex explore that are available to all ages now. And we just see, like, we see everybody at the park cheering and, mm -hmm. like, applauding, and you see all different ages, all different body types. Like, it's, it, that is accomplishing so many things all at once, yeah. not just community. <laughs> and there's that being uncomfortable thing again, yeah. right? It comes back to try something you might not be good at. Put yourself out there. Join a community. You don't have to be good at it. It's finding people to have fun mm -hmm. with and just to accept, right? And so if we want to just wrap this up and give it a another little takeaway, uh, it can just be that kind of asking yourself that question, like if I'm – like, am I feeling accepted in day-to-day -day life? Do I feel loved unconditionally? If you're feeling there might be a gap there, look at who you're spending the majority of your time with. Are these people who are building you up and supporting you, or are you maybe spending a bit too much time with people who cut you down and, and don't really honor your true sense of self? Because when you can spend, spend more time with people who are, like I said, like-minded or just they love you unconditionally and just accept you for who, we are, who you are, that support is what's going to lead to um, lead to long-term health. Absolutely. Yeah, I started tripping over my own tongue there a little bit too. <sighs> I, the, I the, heard. We've been going on a while That's here, okay. so we've got one more pillar. Yeah. One more pillar, and that is stillness. So we started with movement. We're ending with stillness. And the last time we we did a podcast about this, I was like, "This is my favorite pillar," which then was kind of funny. And I centered that around because I I realized I love to sleep now, and that was really the main reason. I think my love for stillness has grown since then for uh, another reason. Um, but stillness can really be distilled down into kind of recovery for the both mental and physical. And sleep is definitely one of them, but there's more to the more to um, stillness than just sleep. Mm -hmm. um, stillness is definitely like <laughs> sleep is one of them, one of the ways in which we achieve uh, stillness, of course. But having stillness while you're still conscious throughout your day is equally important. And this is something that I think in 2019, like, my word of that year was trying to find stillness uh, in my life because I was always, I was the, I was the I am busy person um, for way too many years. And I didn't complain about it, but it was definitely having a really strong 
influence, negative influence on, on my health in particular. And so stillness is something, you know, for some someone it might be meditation. Um, that's usually, like, people will usually guess that stillness is meditation or sleep, right? But it's not just that. It's like giving yourself mental, mental and physical rest, and you might be doing that by reading, like, a fiction book. You might be doing that by journaling. You might doodle. You might actually paint or draw. I know that there is some movement <laughs> associated with that, but the whole point is that you're able to just like tap into sort of an open mental state and or perhaps a lightly like creative state. And not always being busy doing stuff is really hard for a lot of people. Every minute of the day has to be accounted for. And given our industry, we're in, you know, we're obviously in careers where, like, you're so acutely aware of the hour because your sessions are an hour. And then if you have paperwork, like, that's it, or charting, that's like a specific time. And so breaking away from that, like, constant monitoring of the clock is hard, <laughs> um, but it also incredibly necessary because. Stillness is just so fundamental to who we are. We're not supposed to be grinding all day from the moment we get up to the moment we crash at night. And some people um, think, oh, well, I do lounge, and I, so technically that is stillness, but they're scrolling on their phones most of the time. That's heavy mental work. Even if you're just, like, scrolling, I don't know, one of the apps like TikTok or Instagram, there's a lot of mental processing going on with all of the rapid-fire, you know, sort of... Um, the rapid fire information you're taking in, even if it's completely useless, like a duck made friends with a turtle and then, I don't know, a piglet walked in. Okay, like, this great. is important content though, Freya. <laughs> it is, but even then, it's still, it, it's still mental, like a lot more mental work than we really need to be taking part in in that moment if we're trying to achieve stillness. Um, and, and that's... Uh, it's a hard thing for some people, myself included. There's always something to do. There's always a to-do list, you know, mm -hmm. as part of it. And then, yes, there is sleep on top of that. And, again, I love sleep. Sleep is, it, sleep is a thing where some people, again, this comes down to identity in a lot of places. A lot of people identify as being a bad sleeper. Some people identify as being a good sleeper. And while there's truth to a lot of those things, trying to find peace with if you've had a history of not being a great sleeper, also just being horizontal and resting is still extremely restorative in a lot of ways. And coming to peace with that is very important for a lot of people. You had something to say on that? Yeah, and not looking at your phone. <laughs> like, lie in bed and just like allow yourself to be there. And I'm speaking as somebody who is always working on sleep. Like I have to practice it. I have to. I've learned how to be better at it. I've learned how to get through, um, you know, the the impulse to just give up at two in the morning and go start doing work because like I can't fall asleep again. It does take work. It does take practice. You do have to actively work on helping your body feel safe. Uh, reading before sleep is one of the most powerful sleep aids in my experience being on your phone is one of the most powerful wakeful things so if you're reading on your phone and then you're crashing or you're watching tv and falling asleep to it and then you complain about 
being a light sleeper, those things are contributing to it. And maybe six years ago, I would have hesitated to say that, but like hands down, mm-hmm. those are contributing to it. Yeah, and, and if you again go on the internet, everyone's going to talk about light, light, blue light, all this kind of stuff before bed. The content of what you're consuming and what you're doing before bed is a far bigger concern than the light. And I'm not saying blast bright lights, but the content is far more important for your nervous system in terms of how your brain and your body are going to be able to shut down before going to sleep. Um, One of my favorite things about stillness is kind of combining stillness and sense of self, starting my days, even if it's just five minutes, to sit and try and just repeat a mantra, call it meditation, whatever it is, but just a mantra for the day, and just to check in again on my sense of self and to be still, kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, Or feed two birds with one crumb. Or feed, if we're going to be very kind, which is one of my mantras a lot of the time. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, a a good takeaway for stillness, I think, is, again, check in on how are you identifying if, are you like, I'm a bad sleeper, or like, oh, no, I can't meditate, I'm a bad meditator, I can't do this, is remember hard things (laughs) make life easier so if it's something you're not comfortable with or you identify in that way look into is has that mentality and that mindset been helpful for you and try the thing that might be a little bit more uncomfortable and see if that can bring you a little bit more ease through your day maybe a little bit better sleep at night it's practice it's really all of these things are practice um and that practice (laughs) is making you know making choices it's doing a new thing more than once before pronouncing it as a failure um it's you know finding your own way in terms of what you need to make yourself comfortable when i try something new i need to like mentally rehearse it for a few days first whereas other people are are comfortable just diving in and that both of those things are okay that's where knowing yourself can help you with all of the other other pieces of what will make you more successful. Um, and I've shared this before, but like meditating first thing in the morning, not a good thing for me. I will fall back asleep, I have found. Um, or I'll just feel so fidgety because I've already been like awake for a little bit in bed and just like resting there. I'm so fidgety that like I don't, I don't really, like my brain is in my emails already, even though I haven't opened them yet. And so I found that for me, um, midday, taking 20 minutes to just be, whether I am like formally meditating or um, just not doing work like on purpose, um, that's more my time to sort of help myself recalibrate and check in. Um, I lie on the ground because that tends to help my back. That's my time to create a little bit of stillness. And then again in the evening. So you just need to find like what makes sense for you don't listen to anyone on the internet telling you that the five key habits to the perfect human life is to start your day this way and to do this like it just discounts everybody's experience and rhythms being a little different and it it I think uh, imposes a lot of like this is the good way and what you're doing is the bad way and quite frankly I'm never going to let a stranger online um, who's never met me say that there's like one way for all humans to do things because that's clearly a person who's never worked with other humans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's uh, as good a place any to wrap this up, Freya. Um, you touch base on a lot of good stuff right there, but I think the big takeaway is that there is no one recipe for anyone. These are the five pillars that we've selected because for both ourselves and in our working careers, we find that when people focus on these five areas, it does tend to bring very good results and 
I think the message that I heard myself repeating a lot of times is figure out what have you been doing most chronically and that is the thing that maybe that's the focus to find that new place of a little bit of discomfort something that's a little bit new to you and uh, that can help you know shift the tide a little bit for you. Yeah, and at the end of the day, the idea behind all of these is to create more ease. When these are all lined up, when you've checked in with all these pillars, we find that people have more freedom and more ease in their life. So even if changing it is a little bit hard, as Dane said, the goal isn't to be have it be hard all the time. It is to create more ease um, and more freedom in other facets of life. So with that said, um, as always, you can visit us online and check out our articles because we will have more coming out uh, very soon over the next eight months as well. And uh, we look forward to seeing you through the rest of this season. Absolutely. So once again, I'm Dane Wallace with Freya Spence on the Move Daily Health podcast, and we will be in touch soon. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.